The title of this message is Living in the Power of the Last Adam. That's what I believe God is looking for His church to be doing, and in every generation is living in the power of the last Adam, and that last Adam is Christ. In the early church at Corinth, there were many problems that Paul addressed in his first letter. Some problems had to do with sexual sins, sins of the flesh, some with sectarianism and divisions. Some were saying, I follow Paul, I follow Peter, I follow Paulus, I follow Christ. And other problems that they had were doctrinal misunderstandings. And Paul had his hands full. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, he addressed all of these issues in the book of 1 Corinthians and and into 2 Corinthians. But one error Paul was very anxious to correct was a teaching that was beginning to circulate in the church of Corinth that there is no resurrection after death, no life after this life. 1 Corinthians 15.12 says, Paul said, Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead... How say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? So this was circulating, that there's no resurrection of the dead. Maybe they said Christ is risen, but after Christ is risen, we're not going to have a resurrection. Where did this come from? Perhaps from former Sadducees who had converted to Christianity. The Bible tells us that there were Pharisees and Acts that were saved. I'm sure there were Sadducees as well. And the Sadducees had a, a doctrine that they say there is no resurrection, neither angels nor spirits. That's what it says in Acts 23. We really don't know where this originated from, but Paul takes almost the entire 15th chapter of Corinthians to address the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of believers. Paul explains carefully that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of the Christian faith. Reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Moreover, brothers, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received and wherein ye stand, by which also you are saved, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen of Cephas, or Peter, then of the twelve, and after that He was seen of more than 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep or have died. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen me also as of one born out of due time. Paul said, going back to the beginning, he said, I'm reminding you, I'm declaring to you again the gospel which I preached to you. He says, which you received. He's saying, remember, Corinthians, I preached the gospel. You received it. And he says, and and you stand in it. What he's saying is you were saved by this gospel. When you heard the, the message of the gospel, you received it, right? They were saved. They stood in it. Look at what he says in the next verse. By which also you are saved, if you keep in memory what, and the ESV says, what word or logos I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. What is Paul saying here? He's saying you have been saved by hearing the gospel, receiving it by faith. And here he says, You're saved by this if you keep in memory what I preached unto you. He says, I'm not giving you a new message. It's the same message. What he's saying is you have to hold fast to what I've already preached to you, that simple gospel message. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. If you're moved away from the hope of the gospel, he says it's possible you believe the gospel at first in vain. He says you have to continue to believe it. Don't be moved away from this hope in the gospel is what he's saying. For I delivered to you, first of all, that's what which I also received. And here's the simple gospel, guys. How that Christ died for our sins 
according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. That's the Gospel in a nutshell. Condense it all down, and that is the Gospel. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. That means according to the prophecies, according to the prophetic word which had been spoken about the Christ, and that He was seen of Peter. Here He gives evidence. He says, He was seen by Peter after His resurrection. Then of the twelve. After that, He was seen by more than 500 people at one time. Listen, mockers of the Gospel and and scoffers and unbelievers have said, well, maybe they, they had a delusion. Maybe they were hallucinating and they saw Christ after He died. Listen, you can't get two people to have the same hallucination on drugs, right? How do you get 500 people to have the same hallucination? It's impossible. These people weren't hallucinating. They were seeing the actual risen Christ. Paul said, last of all, He appeared to me as one born out of due time. In other words, Paul said, I missed out on, on seeing Christ, on walking with Christ as the other apostles did in that three years But He appeared to me, and He made me an apostle. Paul emphasizes that the resurrection of believers in the future is inextricably tied to the fact of the bodily resurrection of Christ. He reasons in reverse and says in verse 16, For if the dead rise not, then Christ is not raised. And if Christ be not raised, then your faith is in vain or useless. You are still in your sins. And he says then, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Paul says, look, if this teaching that's being passed around that the dead don't rise, then Christ isn't risen. And he says, if Christ isn't risen, then your faith is vain. You are still in your sins. And he says, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Paul said, I have no use for a faith that's not based on truth, that's not based on the real resurrection of Jesus Christ. If there's no hope for that life that's coming after, why am I suffering all these things? It's expected and understood that the atheist, the hedonist, the one that lives for their pleasures would say, there's no life after death. But for a Christian to say this, a believer, Paul says clearly in verse 32, this is the ESV, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Paul is saying, why would I endure such suffering for the gospel if there's no resurrection? Let's just live like the rest of the pagans do. Let's eat and drink. Let's live for today. Let's live for our pleasure. Let's get the most out of life that we can. For tomorrow we die. Then it's all over. But look what he says in verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep or those who have died. He says Christ is risen from the dead. It's not true that there is no resurrection. There is a resurrection. And Christ has risen. The Old Testament first fruits were part of an offering of a larger harvest. We who believe in Christ are that harvest. Christ has become the guarantee of our resurrection by his own resurrection. Paul knew that this life is fleeting and the next is forever. He knew that all men would be divided into two groups based on Jesus' teaching the saved and the lost, the wheat and the tares, the sheep and the goats, the blessed and the cursed. Paul knew there were two resurrections coming. Jesus spoke of it, a resurrection of life and a resurrection of damnation. One for the saved unto glory and one for the lost and unbelievers to everlasting shame and reproach. Paul said, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. He said, this is so serious. Understanding the terror of the Lord that 
Every man is going to come to the judgment of God. He said, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. 2 Corinthians 5.11 And he said in Hebrews 10.31 It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. People today say, oh, God's loving. He wouldn't judge anybody. That's not what his word says. That's not what his word says. And for believers, it says, we will escape the judgment of unbelievers, but we will all give an account of ourselves and stand before the judgment seat of Christ to receive the things that we've done in the body. I recently watched a documentary on the late Pat Tillman. How many of you know that, that name? A few of you. Some of you younger people don't. Pat grew up uh, the eldest of three boys. His parents were good parents, but they were not religious at all. In fact, they were atheists. His parents encouraged outdoor play and sports, and they discouraged video games and TV. Good for them. (laughs) They didn't have a moral compass like the believer does, so they let their kids swear, and the F word was every other word in these kids' vocabulary from little on. The Tillmans were a close family, but eventually Pat's parents divorced. Pat was an outstanding athlete in high school, and later he became a pro football player for the Arizona Cardinals in 1998. He played safety. He was often underestimated because of his size. He was 5'11", a little over 200 pounds. But what he lacked in size, he made up for in ferocity. This guy could hit. He could hit big guys and just hurt them and knock them off their feet. He was very powerful. Shortly after 9-11, in 2002, Pat decided that he would decline a lucrative contract offered to him by the Cardinals. They were offering him over $3 million. I don't know if it was for three years, but it was a lot of money at that time. He declined the contract because he had spoken with his brother and they had decided to enlist in the army. This was unheard of. I mean, this is a famous guy. It's like someone in, the, in Hollywood or in, in pro sports. For them to join the military, I mean, it's a sacrifice. And a lot of people looked up to him for that. He was shortly made an army ranger after less than a year and he became the most famous person in the military at the time. Everybody knew who Pat Tillman was. On April 22, 2004, Pat Tillman was killed by friendly fire in a tragic accident. At first, the government covered it up. They covered up the incident with lies about him dying in a heroic, fierce firefight with the Taliban. They made him a hero. They awarded him the Silver Star posthumously after he died. And they had this big fanfare of a funeral. They didn't want the negative effect of advertising that this great man who sacrificed, left the Cardinals, joined the army, was killed by friendly fire. What kind of recruitment tool is that? Not very good. So they covered it up. They lied. They lied to the family. They had a big fanfare. A big, they, wanted, they pushed for a military funeral. The family just wanted the truth. They didn't care about the pretense or trying to make Pat into a hero. And that's not the kind of person Pat was. The truth was there was no Taliban attack. In reality, a small group in the platoon behind Pat's platoon, there were two platoons going up into the mountains in Afghanistan, and they got separated, and there was some confusion, and, and Pat and a few other men went up into, the, into a ridge to try to give some support to the platoon behind them. Let's call it Platoon 2. And a small group in Platoon 2, maybe four or five guys in a, in a Humvee, thought that Pat Tillman and the men up there were Taliban. So they started shooting at them, they started firing at them, and they moved in closer and continued to shoot. Pat was the only American soldier to die in that attack. There was an Afghanistan freedom fighter that was also killed, but Pat was the only American to die in the attack. He was a good soldier. He was a great pro athlete, but he had no faith in God. He had no, no belief in life after death. When the friendly fire started, there was a young soldier, and I remember I was in the Marines, 
There were always that guy that was a little bit awkward, a little bit weaker, and he looked up to the stronger guy. And there was a guy like that that looked up to Pat Tillman. He was, he was like under him, under his wing, looked up to him. And this young man started praying out loud. It says in, he said this. He started, I started praying out loud. I said, God, have mercy on us. Please, don't let us die. If you have mercy on us, God, I'll repay you. I'll live for you. God, and, and as he said this, as he's saying this, praying out loud, Pat Tillman said, stop praying. You're going to get yourself killed. Stop praying. And moments later, Pat Tillman was killed by 50 caliber machine gun fire. I'm not going to tell you the gory details. It's pretty gruesome. That young private who was praying survived. I'm not saying that God always you know, takes the life of the atheist and, and spares the Christian. Or, or spare. Sometimes in World War II, I've heard of stories where the believer died and the unbeliever survived. Hopefully later to have another chance to receive Christ. As Pat Tillman was dying, as he was first shot by some of the bullets, he said, Don't you know who I am? I'm Pat Bleeping Tillman. I'm Pat Bleeping Tillman. I'm not saying Pat died because he was an atheist. All of us will die. And sometimes in combat and life, as I said, the believer dies and the atheist survives. What I am saying is that it's tragic when anyone dies without Christ. It's tragic. At Pat's funeral, there were many famous people didn't know the Tillmans, but they were there. They were giving speeches about a man they didn't know. Maria Shriver tried to console the family in a speech saying they could be at peace because Pat was with God now. But when Pat's brother, who knew Pat, came to the microphone, he shocked everyone. He said, Pat is not with God. Pat is dead. He said it twice. Pat is not with God. He's just dead. And he was crying. It was very emotional, very sad. Well, that's what they believed. They didn't believe in God. And I thought about this afterwards, and as hard as it was to watch, I had to think afterwards that his brother was partly right. Pat did not believe that Christ died for his sins, was buried and rose again according to the Scriptures, as we read earlier, that Paul said, look, this is the Gospel. Christ died for our sins, was buried, and rose again. Pat didn't believe that. Listen, he didn't believe the testimony God gave of his son. Scripture is clear. He that has the Son has what? Life. He that does not have the Son does not have life. 1 John 1.12 Pat is not just dead though. As much as people would like to think that. I remember I had a friend when I was in a commercial carpentry. He said, yeah, when you die, it just lights out. It's just a dirt nap. Worm food. But God's Word says, it is appointed unto man once to die. And after this, the judgment. We will stand before God. There is a resurrection unto life and a resurrection unto damnation. This is why Paul was willing to suffer so much in his life and to labor so hard, not counting his own life dear to himself so that he could finish his course with joy, preaching the gospel. Because there is an answer to save men's soul and it's in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I ask you, and I ask me, are we living with the purpose and energy that Paul did because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Are we loving people and caring about their souls by sharing the gospel whenever we have opportunity? Are we praying for opportunity? Or are we confessing the resurrection with our mouths, but living like there is no resurrection or eternal judgment? 
Eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. I've never heard a Christian say, no, there's no resurrection. But I have seen lots of Christians live, let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Caring very little about the souls around them. And I've been in that camp myself. In 2 Kings chapter 7, I'm going to just give you this real short synopsis of the story that's very interesting, but it applies. Ben-Hadad was the king of Syria, and he had laid siege to Samaria. And Samaria, when an army lays siege to a city, they stop any commerce, they stop any food or water from going in or out, and eventually their purpose is to starve you out. And that's what they did. They created a famine inside the city of Samaria. And the king said, I'm sick and tired of waiting for God. He heard this horrible story about a woman who said, yesterday a woman came to me and said, let's cook my son for dinner tonight and tomorrow we'll cook your son. So we ate her son and then the next day she hid her son. Horrible, horrible famine. The king said, I'm not waiting for God anymore. Elisha came and said, tomorrow everything's going to change. See, the famine had so gripped the city that they were selling a donkey's head for 80 pieces of silver. They were taking dove dung and a fourth part of the dove dung was selling for four pieces of silver. Were they eating the dung? I don't know. But it was desperate, horrible. And Elisha said, God is going to... Right when you're ready to give up, king, God's coming through with an answer. This time tomorrow, he said the economy is going to totally change. There's going to be an influx of blessing and grain and and everything that you're lacking right now. It's going to be so great. The economy is going to go completely reverse. There was a man who was a leader and he was leaning on he was leaning on the door and he said, if God opened the windows, windows of heaven, could this really happen? Elisha said, you'll see it, but you won't eat of it. He couldn't, he couldn't receive of it because he didn't have faith and he later died. When God opened the doors and fulfilled that prophecy, he died. There were four lepers. This is the interesting part. There were four lepers and right as this was transpiring with the king saying to Elisha, I'm giving up, I can't handle this anymore. And Elisha said, you gave up at the wrong time. God's time is right here, right now. Should have held on a little longer. These four lepers are standing at the gate of Samaria and they're saying, what are we going to do? We're starving to death here. No, they were double outcasts, right? They were outcasts because of their leprosy, plus they were starving with the rest of the people. They said, if we go into the city, which really they couldn't by the Jewish law, says we're going to die in there because they're starving in there. If we stay here, we're going to die. Let's, let's just defect. Let's go to the Syrian camp. Let's go to them and maybe they'll have mercy. If they don't, then we die. And if we die, we die. Right, we're going to die. We've got three choices. The only opportunity for life is to go into the Syrian camp, right? So these four lepers plod out at night and they go into the Syrian camp. And what do they find? The camp has been completely deserted by the Syrians. All the Syrians' goods, their food, their horses, their cattle, everything is there. They just got up and ran. God made them hear the sound of chariots. And the, and the Syrians became fearful and said, the Israelites have hired the Egyptians. They've hired other armies. They're coming after us. And they just ran away. Left everything there. So these four lepers come into the camp. And you know what they do? What would you do if you were starving? I'd eat. Right? They grab food. And they're like, this is awesome. Look at this. Look at all this food. They grab food. They start eating. They're, they're rejoicing. They take some of the silver, some of the clothes, and they, they take it out of the Syrian camp and they hide it. And then they say, let's go back. I'm hungry. You want to go back? And they go back. They eat some more. They take some more stuff and hide it. See, what had they found? They had found salvation. They had found deliverance. They had found food. Right? They found life when they were facing death. Listen to what they say in 2 Kings 9.4. They stopped and they said, okay, kind of indulged here, kind of enjoyed this. And they said, we do not well or right. This is a day of good tidings or good news. 
and we hold our peace. In other words, we're just sitting here hiding and not saying anything and keeping it all to ourselves. He said, if we wait till morning, some mischief will come upon us. They said, let's go back and tell the king. and Let's, let's tell the soldiers. Let's, let's tell the people that are still in Samaria what's happened. So they did that. And at first the king didn't believe it. And then the story goes that they came, they found that the Syrians had fled and they took all this spoil. And just as the prophet had said, all the blessing was there. Listen, I think we as believers are like these four lepers sometimes. We're dying. We're lost in our sin. We're starving. And we find Christ. We hear the gospel preached to us and we hear the good news that we can be saved through faith in Christ. And we receive it and we eat of it. We say, this is amazing. This is good. And we, we take it and we hide it for ourselves, right? And we don't think about the other people that are starving. But they came to their sense. They said, you know what? We got good news. We need to go tell other people about it. Friends, that's what we as believers need to do. We have found life in Christ. Salvation, resurrection, everything is in Christ. We should share it. I believe the most loving thing we can do on this earth, the most loving thing, is not mow your neighbor's lawn. That's great. Be a testimony, be a witness. Shovel their driveway in the winter. If it's 15 inches, you are a saint. (laughs) But it's not that. It's to share the simple gospel of Jesus Christ. It's to open your mouth and just say Christ died for sinners, was buried, and rose again. That's the most loving thing you can do. If you're not sharing the gospel, support the gospel. If you can't say it, then give a Bible tract. But my friend, the gospel is a message. It's a message. It must be conveyed either by orally or in written format. It can't be conveyed by osmosis. Have you heard people say, look, I don't share the gospel, I just live the gospel. You know, that's great. Sounds really great. And we should adorn the gospel by our lives, by our living. But my friend, you can be the nicest neighbor and the nicest person if you never open your mouth and share the gospel or give a tract or invite someone to hear someone who can share the gospel. Your friends and neighbors aren't going to hear the gospel, at least from you. Right? It's a message. Are we ashamed of the message? Paul said what? I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. The power of God in the gospel, in that message. Paul said, I don't care even if it's not preached sometimes. Juan Carlos shared it two months ago. Even if people share the gospel and their motives aren't right, if they're sharing the true gospel, Paul said, I don't care. It's just that the gospel is preached, whether in pretense or truth. Listen, it's not our job to save people. Paul talked about saving people, but we understand that's in the context that he was the messenger bringing the message of salvation. God does the saving. He said, I planted Apollos water. God saves. It's not our job to save a person by how effectively we share the gospel. It's just to give the message. Let God do the work of saving. Are we too embarrassed, too self-conscious to share the life-saving message? Paul said, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed. Are people going to laugh at you? Are people going to turn away from you? Yes. But some won't. Some will receive it. And you and I don't know who will. And some might not receive it today. They might laugh at you today, but they'll receive it when someone else shares it. Or they'll receive it when you share it some other time down the road. Leave the fruit up to God. The reality of the resurrection should change the way we live. The way we plan our future. 
Think about our future. And it should give us a burden to lovingly, pleadingly share Christ with others. Friends, the stakes are high. We're not inviting people to join a club or join a church. We should, as Jude said, save others with fear, pulling them out of the fire. Like a firefighter pulling someone out of a burning building. That's how Jude described it. Do you ever feel inadequate to share the gospel? I do. Paul did. Look at what he says in 2 Corinthians 2.16. Who is sufficient for these things? We're standing between the dead and the living. Right? Who is sufficient for these things? Paul said later in the third chapter, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God who also has made us able ministers or equipped ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. You can take the Bible and just beat people over the head with it, and it's like a letter. It'll just kill them. It'll just... But if you use the word rightly, if you rightly divide the word of truth, and you're filled with the Spirit, it's going to bring life. The Greek word translated giveth life is... Zoe poiao, and I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. It means to quicken, to cause to live, to give life, to make alive. It's often used synonymously with the same word resurrection. Jesus said in John 6, it's the spirit that quickeneth or makes alive. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. It's that same word, zoe poiao. The flesh profits nothing. But Jesus said, the words I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. God called us not only to be made alive by faith in his death and resurrection, but to walk in his quickening spirit. Galatians 5.25 says, if we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit. In other words, if you've been made alive by the spirit of God, you've received the spirit of Christ. It's not God, thanks for my fire insurance. I'll see you when I get to the day. No, he says, walk in the spirit, walk in the spirit of Jesus Christ. It says in Acts 10.38, it says, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, and He went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil. Listen, if we follow Jesus, we're to walk as Jesus did. That's what it says in 1 John. We are to be filled with Christ's Spirit. He went about healing those that were oppressed, giving life to the dead, right? Showing compassion, Speaking the gospel to the poor, it says in Luke chapter 4, God has made us able ministers of the new covenant. We're not sufficient in ourselves. I can't say, I have the strength in me. No, by His Spirit, He's equipped you. By His Spirit, He's equipped you. He's made you an able, that means an equipped minister of the new covenant. We're His ambassadors. He's called us to live a life walking in the Spirit. A Spirit that gives life to others that gives hope to others. Aren't people around us dying? All around us they're dying, in your neighborhood, in your workplace. All around us people are dying. They need that message of Christ. Galatians 5.25 says, If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 15.45. This is a really interesting verse. It says, The first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last, Adam, a quickening spirit. Adam became a living soul, right? God breathed into the dust of the ground and he became a living soul. He became alive, right? But it says the last Adam became a life-giving spirit or a quickening spirit. And that's that same Greek word. 
that I can't pronounce. It's that same Greek word. Jesus, the last Adam, became a life-giving spirit, a resurrecting spirit. That's what he did. He went around doing good and resurrecting. People around him that had faith were coming to life. They were being healed. They were being shown mercy. Adam had his life within himself. The only life he could, re could create was a reproduced natural life, a fleshly life. He could not give life to someone spiritually dead. But that's what Jesus did. That's what he came to do. From the point of the fall, Adam's physical life began ebbing away from him. The clock began ticking to his time of death. His spirit immediately died, and he lost power and the right to walk uprightly with God. From his one act of rebellion came all the evil thoughts and actions that separate man and God. Romans 5 tells us, By one man sin entered the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. And by one man's disobedience, all were made sinners. Some people say, It's a raw deal that I became a sinner without choice. Because of one man's disobedience some 7,000 years ago. I didn't choose to eat of that fruit. No, you became a sinner by Adam's choice and by your own, walk, your, own, your own action as well. Thank God that he didn't leave us languishing in the sin mess of the first man, Adam, but sent Jesus to undo the wrongs of Adam. To reverse the curse. It says Jesus became a curse for us so that we wouldn't be cursed. Jesus dealt with sin on the cross. The death that Adam brought into the world, Jesus says, death is going to be swallowed up in victory. Right? Because of his resurrection. When he returns, death is going to be swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sin? Oh, grave, where is your victory? One man, sin entered into the world. Adam is our natural father, our representative, and we received from him a lot of bad stuff, didn't we? How did you come into Adam? By birth. You were born into the world. You became a natural person, a woman or a man. How do you come into the last Adam? By birth. By birth. Not a natural birth. The second birth. Believe in Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. That's how you come into the benefits of the last Adam who broke the curse, who brought life and eternal life to light through his death and resurrection at the cross. Listen, you're either under the old Adam or you're under the last Adam. Thank God that he became a quickening spirit. It says in Romans, so by one man's, just as by one man's disobedience, death came into the world, by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. So you say, I got a bad deal through Adam. Yeah, we all did. But we got a great deal through Christ if you'll trust in him. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 says, for since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. And that's that Greek word quickened. Even in Christ, it says, so even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Now some would say, well, see, he's teaching universalism. Everybody's going to be saved. It says, in Christ, all shall be made alive. But what's the key there? In Christ. You must be in Christ to experience the resurrection of the just, right? You must be in Christ. And how do you get in Christ? You must be born again. We have the promise that Christ came into the world to save sinners, that he rose from the dead, and those who trust in him have the promise that he will raise us up also with new glorified bodies. That's great news. You know, I'm 48 and I do what I can to try to put off the inevitable. But you can't, right? The gray is there. The gray is here. The balding is starting, right? <laughs> the wrinkles are there. It's inevitable. Every one of us, every beautiful girl in this place, guess what? Beauty's going to fall. Every handsome man, strong man, your strength's going to fail. Isn't that true? 
Time will do that. Why? Because we're living in a perishable, perishable body that's been cursed by sin. We are going to die unless Christ returns and we're taken to be with Him immediately. Listen, this is good news. We're going to receive a glorified body, a spiritual body like Jesus had, where He walked through walls and yet He still ate bread and fish. Look, behold, I show you a mystery, 1 Corinthians 15, 51. We shall not all sleep or die, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. For the trump shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible, that's this old body, shall have put on incorruption, that's the new body, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Praise God. The Bible says that to be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. If I die today, I go out after church and I say, oh, I'm going to go on a bike ride. And I get on my new e-bike and I'm going 28 miles an hour and I decide to go down to the lake and I get hit by a Mack truck and I'm dead. The Bible says that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. My spirit will be with Christ instantly. My wife is saying, don't put those thoughts in my head. (laughs) But it says that when the trump sounds, when the last trumpet sounds, that those that come with Christ, those that are with them in the Spirit, their dead body is going to resurrect and be changed. And they're going to receive a glorified body. And those that remain that are on the earth, we're going to be changed instantly and receive our glorified body. Instantly. No more aging, no more suffering, no more cancer, no more heart disease. I can't tell you in the last two weeks or month how many people I've heard that have gotten cancer. I was like, what's going on? People are getting cancer left and right. Listen. The Bible says you will receive a new body because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's the first fruits. We're the rest of the package. When He comes, when He comes, that's the fulfillment of what He earned at the resurrection. That's when the culmination all comes together. Praise God. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption your body. It's earthly, it's natural, it's sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It's sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. What a great hope the believer has in facing the future, in facing death. But someone will say, what are the effects of the resurrection for me now in this life? I'm a Christian, I've been saved 10 years, 20 years, and sin still has its grip on my life. Remember Paul in Romans 7? He was saved, and yet he said, the good that I want to do, that I don't do. The evil I don't want to do, that I keep doing. He was in this cycle of, he loved the law of God, he loved God's word, but he kept going back to the things he didn't want to do. Do you see that? And you know what he finally said? But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That was his hope. See, Paul was, was saved and had the Holy Spirit, but he was trying to get the victory through his own effort, through trying harder. And that old man, Adam, the first Adam, every time he wanted to do good, he'd kind of reach up to Paul and grab his heel. And he'd feel the tug of sin. Any of you ever been there? Paul said, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's my victory. That's where the resurrection power is. That's where I'm made alive in Christ and have victory over sin. It's through faith in Christ. What did Paul say? Galatians 2.20. He said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He said, this life... I've learned to live it by faith. 
in Christ. By simply looking to Jesus. When I'm tempted, I look to Jesus. When that old man comes and says, hey, you want to live in the first Adam? I say, no, I'm purchased and bought by the last Adam. He has set me free and my eyes are on him. That's the key to living the resurrection victory in this life today. The power, you can't say, I'm going to try harder, I'm going to do better as a Christian. Look, you're in the cycle of Romans 7. The devil wants you to live in Romans 7. You know why? Because it gets tiring. It gets discouraging. Trying and confessing and repenting and trying and failing and trying and failing. It gets discouraging. Thank God that Jesus says, come back to me. Look to me. Confess your sin. I'm going to teach you how to walk. But listen, I'm going to teach you how to live with your eyes on me. By simple faith in me. And you'll know my resurrection power. You'll know that I'm the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. You'll know that I give you victory. And I'll enable you to be witnesses for me. You know how long you need to be saved before you can witness for Christ? About two seconds, maybe one. Just give the simple gospel. Ask God for strength. It's not dependent on how eloquent you are, how well you can say it. Can you go through the four spiritual laws? It's Christ died for sinners, was buried, and rose again. Listen, friends, there is no victory in the first Adam. You keep trying to white-knuckle it and keep trying to try again and try again. Listen, quit trying and look to Jesus for your victory. He has the victory for us. I want to tell you this personal testimony. I've been tempted in my life after coming to Christ. Every time, every time, I have said, Jesus, help me. I'm being tempted. I need you. Every time, without fail, Jesus Christ has come and given me victory. And I have not fallen into that temptation. He's poured water on the fire of my passion. He's provided a way out for me. Every time, that's walking in the Spirit. It's just humble submission and dependence on Jesus. But every time I've said, no, oh, I, I think I can handle this one. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to do it. I can do it. I'm relying on the old Adam the first Adam, and I fall. What did Paul say in Galatians 5? This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you'll not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. You want to know the the key to victory over the flesh? Walk in the Spirit. Walk in simple dependence on Christ, and you'll get victory. Thanks be to God, which gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. All the life is in Him. All the power is in Him. Resurrection power. Amen. Let's close. Father, thank you for your word. God, Lord, I pray if there's anyone here today, Lord, who's like Pat Tillman, who has not trusted that Christ died for his sins or her sins, was buried and rose again. God, I pray that they would come humbly to the cross and to the empty tomb and they would say, Jesus, I do believe. Save me. I'm a sinner. And Father, I pray for anyone else in this place, God, that Lord is challenged today by your word. I'm challenged by your word, God, to not live as if there is no resurrection or judgment coming. But Lord, to be living in the light of the resurrection, living in the power of the last Adam, and sharing the gospel whenever possible, Lord. I pray in Jesus' name that our convictions would not be short-lived, that they would not just last as long as they can remember this sermon, 
but that you would drive the conviction deep into our hearts and we would become soul winners for Christ. Knowing that you're the one that gives the increase, Lord, but we are called to plant and to water. Lord, help us also to get the victory through simple faith in Jesus Christ, to walk in your spirit and not in the old Adam, not in trying harder, but in trusting you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.